0: Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy! Well, welcome to Centerpoint Church. My name is Aaron DeMaster. I'm the pastor here. Our mission here is to help you take the next step in developing your relationship with God. We do here what any good Christian church should do, which is to help you connect with God in a worshipful way and help you grow in your relationship with Him. Uh, Our style, it just might be a bit different than what you're used to or other churches in the area, but we want you to know we're still true to the Bible, we take God very seriously here, and we want to guide and encourage you in your weekly walk with God. We are right now in uh, the last week of our series that we've been calling Intersections, and in this series, we have looked at the intersection of someone who's dedicated to following Jesus, what we're all about here, and then comparing that to both other religions and other Christian denominations. Week one, we looked at Judaism and Jewish beliefs. Week two, we looked at various Christian denominations. Last week, we looked at Islam and Muslim beliefs. And for our last week of the series, today, we're looking at Hinduism and Buddhism. Y'all might be here and you're like, wait, what? What kind of church is this now? Come on, what did I just walk into? You might be thinking that. If that's you, slow down, hang in there for a second, because I hope today you leave knowing a bit about Hinduism and Buddhism But most importantly, in that learning, you have a greater appreciation for Jesus. Because my main goal today is, in our comparison, is for you to have or to leave having a greater sense of God's presence in your life. A realization that your life matters today. And that you can have certainty, without a doubt, on your status with God. Because i got to ask, wouldn't it be great if you just knew when God was near you? Or when he was present with you? Wouldn't it be nice to know exactly when or exactly what God wants you to do with your life? Or wouldn't it just be nice to know where exactly you stand with God? As I ask these questions and hopefully stir some curiosity, I've been chuckling with it a little bit this week because it makes me think of my first few years of dating, like way, way, way back when, middle school dating. Uh, I'm from the generation... Where like email was just becoming a thing, Yahoo, AOL, Hotmail, MSN. Anybody there with me on those? All right, you know you know what I'm talking about. You can tell you're close to my generation if you still have a Hotmail or Yahoo account these days. And the email is something like skaterboy underscore 7 right, at hotmail.com. But for my generation, email was part of the early dating in middle school. Ooh, someone emailed me. It's kind of like the feeling that you got. And I think it was the feeling that you get, like, that they talk about in the movie, You've Got Mail. Has anybody seen that movie? Like, it, all of a sudden, like, you like, you get the connection well. to the Internet. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got Ooh, mail. Ooh, right? Like, it's like, oh, someone's, someone's into me. But now, translate that to a 12-year-old. Like, now it's like, oh! Like, you're, like, way different, right, than what she's maybe feeling. The emails as a teen were a little different, too, right? Like, for me, it was like this. Hi, how are you? And then, like, my email, skaterboy277, or whatever it was, right? Like, that was what was sent. They were pretty basic. But you would get something like that, and you'd be like, ooh, this person might be into me. Or or you might be like, ooh, I, I don't even know. Is this person into me or not? It's It's this guessing game, both in person and online, especially early on in dating. You don't know if the presence or messaging of a person really is a sign of being into you. You're not sure what your next move should be. And sometimes... You get to the state in the relationship where you're not really sure what is your status? Like, what are you? Well, again, I'm from a tech generation, and after MySpace, when Facebook started, it included relationship status on your profile. It defined it for you. You could put one of these in a relationship, engaged, married, it's complicated, divorce, right? You could put one of those. Well, when Facebook came out, I was a bit older now, yet still dating, but defining the status helped. Ooh, your Facebook official, people would say. You know, like, that was a thing. I'm not saying dating is easy now. It's definitely complicated now, too. But growing up in school, all you had to go off of was the cutesy, ooh, so-and-so talked to me. So-and-so keeps visiting. So-and-so keeps making eyes with me. So-and-so, I think they're into me. They said they're into me. And then you're like, but are they really? And you start second-guessing yourself. And then you start wondering, should I make a move or not? And you just wanted to know where you stood with this person. Can you relate to me, anybody? I think you can, but maybe this is a guy thing. As women, you never have to worry about any of these things. It's all the expectation on the guys. I'm being sarcastic. That, that is so false because I know how many women now put the moves on and how very equal it is these days. But it's just rough for all of us. Like, what is the status? With all this said, questions of, is this person actually into me? Do they want me to make a move? And what is our status? Those are all questions, and although are very difficult to know when you're just figuring out dating or in a starting relationship, these are also things people question in a relationship with Jesus. I know because I've been there and I've wondered these things too. How about you? Have you wondered, uh, is God's presence really there? What is it really like? Have you ever wondered, how do you know what God wants you to do with your life or what to do next? Or just wanted to know, where do you stand with God? Are are you good or not? Are you in or are you not? Questioning these things, honestly, it shouldn't be an issue because as a Christian, you can know through Jesus. You can know how close he is to you and how he gets close to you. You can know that he wants you to make certain choices and decisions in your life and that you can know what your status is without a doubt with Jesus. Yet we still struggle with it. We can know, but we struggle What's interesting, though, is these are almost all the same things other religions struggle with, yet they don't have the same access to answers or clarity as Christianity does. For this series, we've talked about a big defining separation between Christianity and other religions, which is the guarantee of your salvation, of forgiveness through Jesus, through faith in his gift of grace, of a God who is intimate and wants to be individually close to you. In week one, we saw that gift uh, in Ephesians. Check it out. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You are saved by accepting this gift of grace through faith, through your belief in Jesus. Because accepting that, it shows that you are acknowledging you've messed up. You need God, you need his ways, and accepting grace then should change you. But you know what it says next in that Ephesians passage? Check it out. It says this. I'll read the beginning part for you. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's saying we are saved when we believe. We, or you, are God's masterpiece, and He has plans for us. But I'm sure you question that, and sometimes I do too. And the religions we're comparing today also question this a lot. Yet I think when we analyze these religions, it can give us clarity in how we can truly trust in Jesus. Trust in him being, trust in the fact that we're saved by him, trust in that we can experience his presence now, and trust in the fact that he gives us direction on our next life moves and have certainty in who he is today. Again, the religions we're looking at today are Hinduism and Buddhism. And the stereotype just a little bit about them, many many of us Americans, we know very little about these Dharmic religions or Indian religions from India. So there's a few words I'm gonna dump on you before we look at these, and I want to like look at these religions at like the cup game, you know, like where there's like something under the cup. Check it out, like, and it starts playing. There's, it's in the middle. There's a little ball in there. See if you can follow it. And these religions that we're gonna look at are like three cups that have something very different underneath them. Can you see which one it is? Did you lose it? Are you following it? No, no. Oh. Anybody get it right? I don't have a prize for you, sorry, no. But I think the religions we're comparing, to it kind of looks like this. There's one with nothing underneath it, one with one underneath it, one with many underneath it. Now, Christianity is the one, it's a monotheistic religion, as in we believe in one God. Hinduism is the one with multiple balls, as they believe it's a polytheistic religion. They believe in tens or hundreds of God's. And then Buddhism is an empty one, as they're a non-theistic religion. They don't believe salvation and forgiveness is dependent on a god. This might stir some other thoughts or two other like, words that could be helpful to define today. Atheism, you maybe have heard that. It's the lack of belief in the existence of any god. And then agnosticism, which is the belief in a higher being, some sort of god, but not something specific. But both are are very different than a non-theistic religion like Buddhism because it, it's used in relation to religions that purposely do not require a belief in God. Whew, it's already getting thick today on the sermon. All right. Anyways, the, the two religions we're looking at today and looking for intersections on are Hinduism and Buddhism. If you've been here the last few weeks, though, for this series, I'm sure you've noticed this. My sermons have gotten long, very long. I've been packing it in. And I don't like this because I honestly, I really do want to shorten it up. I really hope for a goal of a service to be one hour long. So I got one of these. I got a timer, a one-minute timer. So I'm going to use this one-minute timer to shorten things up a little bit. Sorry, not the whole sermon is not one minute. But just like, we're going to cover Hinduism for one minute, and we're going to cover Buddhism for one minute. Y'all can handle that, right? One minute? All right, all right. Uh, But before we dive into these, as I've said each week of this series, I do want to disclose, I have a bias, right? I have a bias. I'm a Christian pastor, so I want you to be a Christian. And although I went to seminary, I am no expert when it comes to these other faiths or other beliefs. And I hope that I give them the respect they deserve and present them well. But know that I am probably far from an expert, and I am definitely not perfect in my explanation of them. But with that, who's ready to hear some about Hinduism? we got one minute of Hinduism here we go. Alright, and Hinduism is the belief that the divine exists everywhere. in animals, people, plants, which means they're pluralistic. <clears throat> There's more than one way to experience God. There are gods everywhere helping you on the journey to reach Brahman. And Brahman is the universe. Everything is connected like the ocean. Picture the goal of a human life is to reconnect with an ocean like a drop of water. The Hindus, they believe that we are immortal souls and we're reincarnated and rebirthed into a new body after death, so we live life after life. And that body that you're placed in each time is based off of karma. Karma is the belief that your actions have a reaction or consequence. You do something good, you move up. You do something bad, you move down. And this is why Hinduism has castes or classes. They see this low caste or the low class as karma, it's what people deserve to be into. So the pursuit and care for them is not really there. But then the high class, it's because you deserved it, you're worthy. So as you move up, the belief is the closer you're getting to Brahman or reaching Nirvana, it's where you are not in one with the universe, where you are not in this endless cycle of reincarnation. And you do that by getting to enlightenment, which is recognizing that all things are united. I think I ran out of time. Probably long ago. All right, I need a drink, though. That was, that was intense. I need a drink of water or coffee here. So that's Hinduism. Now, Buddhism is out of Hinduism. Let's do our one minute of Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't believe in a god. It's based on the teachings of a human named Gautama, who is the Buddha. And Buddhism views life's goal as to escape from personal suffering from the cycle of rebirth or reincarnation and attempt to reach nirvana, again, that ocean-like picture. Buddhism started because the founder was a Hindu in 536 BC in Asia, and he's frustrated that the high caste system was treating the low caste system poorly. And this mistreatment and disagreement and breakdown of the unity of people, it led to experimental things. And the communities, they, they stuck with a lot of the same vocabulary, Brahman, uh, karma, and they held fast to a lot of the same beliefs of karma and again, what karma is, you get what you deserve. But the focus of Buddhism is attempting to become one with the universe on one's own doing, without God. And all of a sudden, new experiences led to enlightenment. Things like noble truths, things like eightfold Past, things like moral precepts, and other ways to think, live, and act. And a Buddhist attempt is to get one's mind right, to become enlightened, to then be fully aware and one with the universe again. Woo! All right. I got my staples button. Maybe it wasn't easy. Oh, it was easy. All right. Actually, not really. It wasn't that easy. Uh, I'm so ready for this series to be done. Uh, this is quite a bit different than any of our other series we've ever done here. So if you hate it, come back next week for our series, Mondays Matter. Some of y'all keep telling me this is your favorite series that we've ever done. I'm like, it's not mine. I hate it. But whew, this, is, this is a lot of info. And I think it gets the ball rolling on each of these religions. But no, it's very brief, it's imperfect, and it's an incomplete view. But some of the differences you can see from Christianity and these is the emphasis on your right actions and good behavior is what saves you, is what they believe. They believe it's up to you to discover right living and right knowledge to move up in the cycle of life. And they believe life is about yourself being connected to the universe, the divine and self and knowledge. These are some stark differences between Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism. But again, in this series, we're not trying to focus on the differences, but the intersections. The intersections that I think are worth discussing and can actually help us in following Jesus better is knowing knowing we all want divine presence. Knowing we all feel change in our actions does something for the better. Knowing we all want to go somewhere and know we're going somewhere in this next life or into into heaven at some point. Which brings us back to the questions we started with today. As a Christian, how do you know when God's presence is near you? How do you know how to live and change? How do you know where exactly you stand with God? And this is where Christianity shines and gives us actually clear and understandable answers that aren't left with the status of, Is complicated, or I'm not sure, but where things can actually be knowable. In the Bible, God tells us where his presence is. God prompts and wants to change you now, today, and God's pursuit is for you to be with him as soon as possible, and it's guaranteed. So for our remaining time, I want to show you what God says about these. The first one is this. God tells us where his presence is. Hinduism and Buddhism, they see divine everywhere and in everything. I like to think of it like, for some reason this is what came to mind, Nutty Professor, it's an old school movie, but they're all Eddie Murphy. He's every single actor of, all the, of that movie. All right. Then there's this one, or Austin Powers, Mike Myers is the actor of multiple characters. Maybe it was a thing of the 90s, I don't know. Well, it's actually not like that at all. I'm going to give you one more ism word of what Hinduism and Buddhism is like. And they're a pantheistic Worldview. So, pantheism. Pantheism is is, is the view that God is everything and everyone, and that everyone and everything is God. Does that make sense? Pantheism is like polytheism. Again, more than one God, but it goes beyond polytheism to teach that everything is God. A tree is God. A rock is God. An animal's God. The sky is God. The sun's God. Which has a lot of ties to what Hinduism and Buddhism believe. In their view of Brahman, or that ocean-like picture we saw, although this is interesting and very maybe a pretty concept of the world, this is not the way of Christianity. What the Bible teaches is God is everywhere. The word script, or not the word Christians use to describe that, is omnipresent, and it talks about this in Psalm one thirty-nine seven through eight. It says, "Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there." God is everywhere is what the psalmist is saying. Sure, God can be in a a tree, but he isn't a tree. Can you see the difference there? God's presence has the possibility to be everywhere. God's omnipresence or ability to be everywhere at the same time, it can exist with or without our awareness of it. He's kind of like an observer of all things. So that's kind of like level one of his presence. And then when you choose to be a follower of Jesus, God says his presence lives within you. When we believe, God establishes a relationship with us that's so close that we become one with Him. He is in us and we're in Him. And His ways, we're close together all the time. 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have God with you. That's kind of the second layer of presence. There's one more, though. Because I don't know if you're like me, there's times where I'm like, well, I don't really feel him sometimes. Like if he's really with me, I don't really feel him moving. I don't really, I'm not aware of that. Which leads to that last layer. It's God's presence in Christianity. There's God's manifest presence, which means God's presence is evident or felt within you. There are times when God comes close to you and you feel it. It could be maybe through a song in the car. It could be a feeling. It could be this encounter with a friend or a time in prayer or, or maybe this, just this feeling of peace. I like to think of God's manifest presence as this, this, this awakening moment where you're just so connected to God. You, you feel it, and it's undeniable for you. Now... These three different layers though, I like to think of God as, as he's present and he's observing like the world, that's layer one, and then he's kind of zooming in on, on being personal with people, maybe it's like in Fondelok or cities, personal with people, and then layer three, it's like with a specific person and he's moving at a specific time to make his will done. The one that we're kind of out of control of is that third layer, right? God's manifest presence. To try and experience more of God's manifest presence, because I think we all would want more of that, is you can pray, you can read scripture, you can do some of the stuff we talked about last week fasting, praying, giving, maybe being in silence, listening for God. But a few additional ones this week to think about to experience God's manifest presence maybe it's through praising God. Maybe you need to praise God, sing, thank, worship Him. According to the Bible, God inhabits praises of His people, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. When people of Israel praise, you are enthroned. you are king there. You become manifest. And another uh, example of this could be, you can be with two or more others. The Bible says that God's spirit comes in Matthew 18:20, "For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Be with people. Maybe that's here in church. maybe that's a small group, maybe that's a family prayer, Maybe that's just with your spouse. And then lastly. Standing firm in your faith can bring the manifest presence to you. There's a time where in the Old Testament where people are about to be thrown into this furnace and uh, they're about to be tossed into it. They're, they're followers of God and it says this in Daniel 3.17. If we're thrown into this blazing furnace, the God will save us. Sir, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, They were put in this furnace. And then it says, the king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed. They didn't purposely put themselves in harm's way. They weren't testing God, but they had an opportunity to stand up for God, and God's presence came. He was the fourth person there. And they experienced the manifest presence. God's presence, it's everywhere. God's presence is with us and God's presence can be manifested in us. Do you want that? Do you want that? Or do you need more of that? What do you need to do to embrace more of that? Do you need to maybe embrace level one of just like acknowledging who God is and that he is present where you are? Maybe you need to acknowledge level two. You need to have this personal connection with God to become united with him so he is with you. If that's you, and you aren't feeling that, tell God. You want connection with him. You want to be with him. Or maybe you need to seek the manifest presence through one of those things we just talked about, prayer, praises, practices, maybe being with more than one person, maybe standing firm in your faith for something. Act on one of these this week. Now, in comparing these religions and talking about God's presence, I want to go on just a little bit of a tangent and go one level deeper. It's a bit trippy, but I'm going there today because it's our last week of the series, so sorry. Uh, but we are seeing there are these three levels of God's presence as a follower of Jesus. But the Hindu and Buddhist view of seeing multiple gods or enlightenment in all things is a very different approach than what a follower of Jesus does. Yet it's something we tend to kind of take lightly. And to me, it's a little scary God's pretty specific about how he wants us to worship him and how we are not to worship him. Now, if you start seeking God in ways that are not of his nature or ways that he describes where his presence will be or won't be, I can't imagine anything good coming out of it. Throughout scripture, there are numerous times God states, have no other gods, have no other idols, or worship nothing else. Check it out. It's in Exodus 23. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. 1 Corinthians, it talks about not giving any demons or evil things uh, power. In 1 Corinthians ten nineteen, it says, Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with Demons. Yeah, demons was just dropped in this church. Yikes. I know it's creepy and it's kind of out there. I don't think I've ever dropped that line or that word before in this church's existence. But there's a quote that says this, that says, The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he did not exist. And I think that relates to demons and evil in general. Right? I mean, just think about how it seems to be a tactic that would be so fitting for evil. Both today's religions that we're looking at, Buddhism and Hinduism, and the culture of today's age that we are currently in, it highlights experimentation in worship. And it's something we should take caution to. We tend to have this perspective of God amongst, amongst the religions like this. We work to the top to get to the top of the mountain to find out at the end, did we make it to the top? Was what I followed right? And then as Christians, we tend to believe anything else that out there is false or fake. They're false gods. Which I guess is an okay way to think about it. You got to do what God's telling you to do. You got to believe what God is prompting you to believe. Yet, what if it's more like this? I'm not saying uh, where maybe there's these other mountains and then the Christianity mountain is flipped. I'm not saying these gods or these mountains are real or that they have real godly power in a sense, but that there could be something there in a sense that something maybe evil that pulls you in on and that never gets to the true God of the universe, and it's just a distraction. Again, we see people in the Bible, they rarely discredit other religions, other mountains. They don't discredit that they don't exist usually, and they don't discredit the fact that if you pursue one of these mountains, that you won't experience positivity in your life. I mean, there are some great people who practice Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, Judaism, and they experience positive life changes and experiences, you can climb those other mountains. Whether or not God exists is unknown, and it's not really the concern. But what's important to know, though, is that the Christian God, the one true God, flips the whole model on its head. This type of thinking, it comes from a book called uh, God Has a Name by John Mark Cormer. And if we go back to the picture, he says it best. Jesus is the only way to God, but a better way to say it is, Jesus is God come to us. As humans, we can never climb high enough of a mountain through our works, through right doctrine, to get to God. Instead, God sent down Jesus for us so that we can have his presence to be with us to get us to the top right away and then to be a part of the lifelong journey with us. So as we talk about presence, I want to warn you, there may be other religious mountains out there. There is evil. Scripture talks about it. And when we give idols respect and power... They can be filled and be used for evil. The idol of evil, it could be in the form of one of those religions, or it could be in the form of something else. It could be in the form of an idol that sucks you in. For example, an ad that maybe makes you think that it's all up to you in your life. Your decisions, it's all up to you. There's nothing else that can help you. Maybe it's an idol of self-help, that you need more money, you need better looks, and you need this, this thing, and it becomes this idol that evil is manifested in. Maybe it's an idol of happiness or pleasure and that's what you pursue. Maybe it's an idol of what everyone else wants. That's actually the idol that, or God or evil that I get sucked into at times. I get sucked into the idol of needing to be the best. I want to be the best, the smartest, the most successful, the happiest, the most free. And I make decisions based off of that. And that's just wrong because I put it before God. It's an idol that's trapped me. God's presence is everywhere, Right? When you're connected to him, you can have his manifest power in you. You can realize his presence. But don't get sidetracked into something else's presence, somewhere else, somewhere that is not Jesus. The second thing of the religions that we're looking at and that they tend to struggle with but that we can have answers to as Christians is is God's promptings and grace are what change you and give you direction on how to form your actions. There's a, a new Adam Sandler movie that's out these days that doesn't look so Adam Sandler-ish, like, you know, the guy that did, like, Big Daddy or whatever. Uh, I'll show you a a trailer quick in a second here, and you can see what I mean. But there's a line in it that I think is powerful and applies to this this concept. Let's check out the video, and then we'll talk about it. You love this game. I mean, love it with your whole heart. Because if you don't, let's not even bother Let's not open that door, they're just going to slam it right in our face. Look, I be riding through my old hood, but I'm in my new whip. Yes, I love this game. I live this game. There's a thousand other guys waiting in the wings who are obsessed with this game. Obsession's going to be talent every time. You got all the talent in the world, but are you obsessed? Let's face it, it's you against you out there. Look at me. When you walk on that court, look at me. You have to think I am the best guy out there. Hey. It's not so Adam Sandlerish, is it? <laughs> but he said a line in there it says, It's you against you. I feel that sometimes in life. It's me against my struggles. It's me to earn my keep. It's me to try and make it better. Because if you don't, you're going to pay. There's consequences. It's you against you. Yes, it's you that can choose wrong. It's the sin within you. But this is not the way of God. This sounds so much like karma. What you put in is what you get out. And it's not the way of God. Grace and karma, they do not go hand in hand. Have you ever found yourself like kind of playfully talking about karma before? It's kind of fun. It's easy to slip off the tongue, like, I think it's like super innocent at times to joke about. Like my wife and I we were laughing one time. She's like, haha, you gotta pick up dog puke. And I'm like, that's not that's kinda crummy. And then all of a sudden, like our daughter had diarrhea for like two days. I'm like, haha, you gotta deal with that, <laughs> karma. <laughs> I used to laugh at people that would have like maybe something stuck to them. I'm like, why did why did they still have a sticker out in them? Or like, that's kinda weird. And now I have a daughter that literally plants stickers on me and now I'm like paranoid about stickers being everywhere on me all the time, and I'm like, karma, karma. It's all good fun, right? But then it can get in spots that conflict with grace. When someone says something nasty to you and you want to see them experience something rough, that's not the way of grace. When someone hurts you and you want them to get hurt, that is not the way of grace. We, myself included, we want to say karma, but that is not the way of God, and it's not supposed to be the way of a Christian. All series long, we've looked at this verse. It's in Titus 2, 11 through 12. And it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace changes us, and it's not up to your deeds or the good karma you did. But that grace saves you should be the same grace that changes you to give grace to others. And hopefully that same grace That they're maybe changed by is then something they give to others. God wants to change you through the gift of grace. Will you let Him? Will you let Him? If anything is you against you, it's are you letting God's grace infiltrate you and be what you give to others? Will you do that? Where do you need to do that? At home? Do you need to do it at work with the people who just really frustrate you? Do you need to do it with people that you see on the news? Do you need to do with your enemies? How can we give grace to them? Is it forgiving them? Is it treating them with respect? Is it being there for them sincerely? God wants us to act in grace. Our actions should follow that. Our last point today is God's pursuit is for you to be with him as soon as possible. He's waiting for you. He wants you. He died for you. He wants to be with you today. The Buddhist or Hinduist view... One can never tell if they did enough stuff until the end. They don't know if there was enough karma to reach to the end, if there was enough good works that they they reached the highest state to get to the end of the cycle. These religions are man chasing after being good enough for God. The way of Jesus is God chasing after man and is waiting for you to accept him. And when you do that, there's no guessing games. You're saved. In 1 John 5, 11 to 13, it says this, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And how you have the Son is the most popular verse that lots of people see around the world. It's John 3 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's not some cyclical guessing game that you find out at the end. It's not some attempt to earn by your effort. It's not some climbing of mountains, but it's through your belief in Jesus. I feel today there's maybe a few people here who want that confidence, that want that certainty of your salvation. If that's you, tell God. Tell God that. Tell him you believe that you've messed up, that you need his forgiveness, and that you believe Jesus' grace of dying on the cross forgives you. If that's you, pray that to God. Tell him that, and you will experience his presence, you'll experience his changing grace, and you'll experience certainty for the future. As I close, I want to pray that with some people silently that maybe want that certainty... A prayer that I think we all could say to confirm our relationship with God and have that certainty. But then I also want to pray for action. I don't want it just to be head knowledge today. I want it to be action. I want us to take action in getting closer to experiencing God's presence. For you, maybe that means going to a place more often where two or three gather. Maybe that means praising God through worship in your car more often. Maybe it means seeking the Christian God and not some false idol or small mountain that doesn't lead to the God of the universe what would that false idol be for you that you need to get rid of? Maybe for you, it's the second thing we talked about. You want focus on letting God's promptings and grace actually change you to determine your actions. Instead of living a karma-like life, maybe you need to embrace grace and give grace at work, with your enemies, at school, or lastly. Maybe you need to commit uh, and and stop second-guessing of where you're at with God. Maybe you just need to commit to following Him, commit to saying you believe in Him, and that you acknowledge that God has come down to you and wants to be close to you as soon as possible. Embrace it. Embrace it so that you can let the ways of God be what lead your life, and you can have certainty with your salvation. I'm going to pray for salvation and certainty for all of us, along with presence and grace-led change. If you want one of those things, too, you can pray with me now. Dear Heavenly Father, some of us right now are saying we want certainty in our salvation. And God, we're saying we believe in the gift of Jesus. We believe that you died for us, for our consequences, and we believe through faith that we are saved by that. You have given us grace, and we can experience uh, more and more grace, and that grace is what changes us. We have to do nothing to earn that. And God, some of us are saying we want that. And God, as we want that, remind us that we have certainty in our belief in you. Finally, God, some of us are saying we want more of your presence, We want more of your presence and just have us take action so that we can experience that manifest presence. And then, God, some of us right now, we're saying we we want to make sure that we take action, take action on experiencing the things that you desire for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.